Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. We're going to hit our sponsors here in just a second, then jump into the episode. But before we do, make sure you stick around throughout the end of the interview and check out the show notes for great opportunities for associateships, partnerships, and more. If you're a practice owner, you want to find great people, and you want to list a job opportunity or just looking for certain things that your peers out there that are veterinarians could benefit from, feel free to shoot me an email. Isaiah at veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. I will do my best to get those up at the end of different episodes. There's no charge for that. My role, my job is to connect good people with good people. So with that, we will hit our sponsors and be right into the interview. Have you ever walked into a space and thought, wow, this is beautiful. There's a reason for that. Architecture has this innate ability to impact emotions and perceptions. My friends at Apex Design Build bring beautiful and functional spaces for veterinarians nationwide. Apex is a fourth generation family run company that is fully integrated from the design, architecture, and construction process. They help you mitigate risks, eliminate surprises, save money, save time, and reduce the effort on your project. Check out their amazing work and have access to their square footage calculator to help you plan your expansion or new build. Click the link in the show notes for an exclusive offer and learn more about Apex Design Build. Tired of waiting for ownership decisions to happen? Frustrated with promises broken? Enter Innovative Management Veterinary Solutions, or IVMS. IVMS's goal is to grow privately held, profitable, unique hospitals across Canada, allowing you, the veterinarian, to focus on medicine and not the practice nuances. They handle accounting, bookkeeping, marketing, advertising, human resources, and so much more. The plan is easy as one, two, three. First, you come work joining the leadership team for a year to learn the systems and processes, ensuring the fit is right for everyone. Second, you enter into a 50-50 partnership to launch your hospital. Again, you help drive where you go. Three, work together, launch, and scale your hospital. Questions? Head to the link in the show notes for more information, how to connect, and see if this is the right opportunity you've been waiting for. Check out Innovative Management Veterinary Solutions. Find out for yourself why my friends at Shepherd Veterinary Software are the fastest growing practice management software. Hint, they're doing something right. Founded by Dr. Cindy Barnes, Shepherd is an intuitive, easy to learn, streamlines practice management. Built for vets, by vets, it works for you and your team so you have more time to spend on what's most important, your patients. Shepherd automatically updates the medical records, adds services to the invoice, generates discharge instructions, and so much more. Bring home more stories and less stress. Check them out at shepherd.vet. Again, that's shepherd.vet. Hey, drama. Yes, we do too. That's why it doesn't exist here. It's the only core value that is non-negotiable. Culture is key at Point Grey and Fraser View Veterinary Hospital located in Vancouver, British Columbia, an outdoors person's paradise. Privately owned, fear-free certified practice, the only fear-free practice in Vancouver. No catches, no hidden terms, no negative accrual, no non-compete, and fully transparent. So what do we expect? Sense of humor? We love to laugh, tell jokes, and banter. Be adaptable? Strong team-oriented personality drive and willingness to excel. What should you expect? you love snacks? Who doesn't? We have a staff room filled with a variety of snacks. We've got you covered. How about coffee or tea? We have you covered. Enjoy a two-month schedule made in advance so you can actually plan your life. No nights or Sundays guaranteed. Salary up to $170,000, including 20 to 25% commission. Visa sponsorship considered, as well as opportunities for ownership. So apply today for Point Grey and Fraser View Veterinary Hospital. Link in the show notes. Why do most banks always seem to be impersonal? slow to answer questions, or give you the runaround on getting money needed for your dreams. Enter Panacea Financial. Panacea Financial, a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors. Whether you're a veterinarian in training, practice owner, or aspire to be one, someday 
Panacea Financial is designed specifically for you. It was started by two doctors who were frustrated in working with banks and so started their own to serve their community. With common sense lending guidelines and fast decisioning, they've helped doctors all across the country start, grow, and acquire their dream practice. Looking to buy into a practice? Panacea helps doctors with practice buy-in loans that are funded in a matter of days, not weeks or months. If you're ready to join the thousands of doctors nationwide who have declared independence from traditional banks, visit panaceafinancial.com today to see how they can get you started with your dreams. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise, member FDIC. All right, so we are here with Dr. Jeff Rothstein, who is a DVM MBA, and he is the founder and co-president of Mission Veterinary Partners, which operates over 320 clinics in 35 states. So certainly staying busy from that standpoint. Dr. Rothstein has written over 100 articles for various different practice management publications and has a lot of accolades. His bio is way too long for me to read because it could be probably about half a podcast itself. So you've done a lot of great stuff. And I just want to say thanks for uh, spending some time and coming on to the show. Thanks. I am happy to be here. Yeah. And we were fortunate enough. We did a pre-call. We got to meet at VMX. So I think this will make the podcast interview and the, the experience even better since we've gotten to chat a little bit in person as well and get to know each other. And you were recently on a number of other podcasts, one of them being with some friends of the show, the VFS show, basically with Meredith and Willie. And I know that when we kind of chatted, it's like you've done a lot of your history and background and covered a lot of kind of where you've come from, the design of your career, a lot of that stuff. So for those that are interested and, you know, listen to this episode, and you're like, hey, I want more of that background stuff. Definitely check out some of the other episodes. I'll link to those in the show notes. But I really wanted to just kind of dive in and get into some of the insights and knowledge that you have and have shared with others and start from there. So one thing that you mentioned in our pre-call that I really, really liked was this idea of wageflation. And I wanted to kind of kick it off there. What is it? Why does it matter? And how is it impactful in veterinary medicine? Sure. Thanks for giving my intro and bio. And I like to just say, you know, I have a lot of my own philosophies and theories. And so obviously I'm very associated with MVP, but I kind of speak on my own and not for the whole organization. For our profession, when I started out a few moons ago, I remember our dean of our veterinary school, James Voss, came in and said the first day, there will always be room for another good veterinarian. And we had a real surplus of veterinarians. And it's always a little bit, you get these Pew reports and they say the projections for the future and so on. So I don't know, it's never seemed that easy to uh, find veterinarians to hire even maybe back at that time. But I think what's changed a lot here is certainly on the surface, there is an undersupply of veterinarians. So the demand is very large for veterinarians and veterinary services. And even I think with the proliferation of groups of clinics and so on and the demand, you're seeing quite a few new clinics open as well. So the de novo model by groups and by individuals is there sort of prompted by COVID. So all that comes together to create a scenario where wages are going up more than I think in other industries and more than historically for the veterinary community. On top of that, of course, is part of it having to do with the excessive debt that veterinary students have. So not only do you have the normal inflation, you know, certainly we're seeing our vendors uh, in the profession, you know, 
most vendors necessity, increasing their prices and maybe what was typically a three, four, five percent, all of a sudden becomes a six, seven, eight percent. So you have a kind of a double whammy. And it's more than just the inflation. So I say that wage inflation is pretty dramatic and that throws some complications into the whole, you know, industry. For sure. And you mentioned the idea of the surplus or shortage of veterinarians and how it was obviously very different than it is now where there's talk of there's, you know, not enough veterinarians. We need more schools. We need to get more veterinarians through school to meet all this demand. When we chatted, one of my favorite questions I always ask, and you're like, I don't know if this is a non-consensus view or not, but you mentioned that that actually might be more of a positive than a negative. Do you want to kind of highlight that and expand on it? Because I think a lot of people look at the shortage in veterinarians out there as a major headwind in this big struggle where you're like, maybe it's not. As you said, in front of us, it seems like a huge hurdle and complicates things in a lot of different ways, even access to care for pets and clients. If I go back again to my days of school and my MBA thesis was on the supply and demand of veterinary services, and I basically said there, you know, if you have 50,000 veterinarians splitting $5 billion in revenue, you're going to be locked into $100,000 compensation. So if you took that number and maybe it was say 100,000 veterinarians and $20 billion of revenue would equate to a $200,000 salary. So some of it to me is just kind of simple math. We're splitting the pie of revenue between more or less veterinarians. And so I think we, while it's painful, I think we want to use this time to become more efficient and make sure that we have the revenue to support the compensation that veterinarians need. And a lot of that then prompts you to say, okay, what are things that we can do to improve our efficiency, be it utilizing staff better? Is it creating a mid-level practitioner position? Is it leveraging our new PIM system? So all these different things that can allow us to be more efficient as opposed to just saying, all right, let's create a scenario where we just have a lot of veterinarians again, and then we get stuck in a low compensation scenario. And, and being a lifelong, passionate person for the profession, I really want to see us break out of what's been a difficult economic scenario for most veterinarians. Yeah. And I mean, the idea, and there's a really great book that I think I've mentioned on this podcast before, written by Jeff Booth, but it talks about how de uh, technology is deflationary. Right. And so like with technology, we should be able to do more with less. And so the idea of using the same numbers of how many veterinarians were needed in, you know, the early 2000s or the 90s or the 80s, it just doesn't necessarily make sense because we should be able to get more efficient from the standpoint of leveraging the team or like you said, technology, the PIMS, other areas to make yourself more efficient. Now, at the same case, right, there's the forever struggle, right, of burnout and people wanting to leave the profession. And again, I think in any profession, you're going to have burnout and within veterinary medicine, like I think that gets exacerbated and it's not just from the veterinary staff, like it's all the way through the techs, um, CSRs, all of that, where there's some financial challenges and struggles there. So to your point earlier, you have to have the revenue brought in by the profession to be able to pay everyone a living wage, not just the DVM, but all the way down through the team. And I think there was an interesting question recently that came up and I wanted to get kind of your thoughts and opinions and take on it because it's this idea of how do you think about profit sharing in veterinary medicine versus equity in the business for employees? And maybe this is beyond just the key employees like the DVMs. And then what are the big differences and 
what have you seen successful? I mean, you had your private practice a while ago. And obviously, MVP has uh, some things going on. Do you have any thoughts on the idea between profit sharing, which is, hey, we're going to split the pie versus actually equity within you know, a hospital or a group of hospitals? Sure. Going back to just kind of the rudimentary reward systems and bonuses, I think they you know, they have their place. I found that you need to change those up or they're not necessarily that motivating. So the staff are interesting, I think, in terms of what's important to them. But ultimately, some form of higher compensation is significant and probably more important than bonuses and rewards is just flat out higher compensation. So creating an environment where we can share more of that pie is significant. So profit sharing certainly can be substantial. And so I think that's one area that we can focus on more. There are groups like ours that allow some equity ownership. And so I think that is significant. And Ultimately, when you do have a larger group of practices, you have that potential of being a little more efficient in terms of cost structure and so on. And so being able to share more with the team has its potential. But I think different forms of ownership are significant. And there are groups like ours that will say that we are employee owned because a lot of people share the pie. And so some of it may be what are you taking home today in terms of profit share or bonus, but some may be, do you gain value with some ownership in the company? And at some point, are you rewarded for that? And I think those models are going to be important. And I think as you know, I certainly deal with a lot of my solo or independent veterinary friends that own their hospitals and how do they compete with the groups and so on. I think those structures are there too to either put in place good profit sharing or also be innovative and allow a certain percentage of ownership. So uh, I think it's just being innovative. And at the end of the day, I think you've got to really look at financial planning and does it add up? You know, is it a, a viable career? And it's a challenge, obviously, as you said, for some of the support staff. But again, I think if we're working hard at making hospitals, and I do a presentation on profitability and how significant that is now and in the future, not just for the owner, but for the team and all the stakeholders, the, you know, your clientele and the community and so on. So, I think that focus on the bottom line sometimes is overlooked and what you can do with that and how significant that is. You may be comfortable with your compensation as an owner, but if you paid more attention to it and were able to pass on more profits to the team, that would be significant. Yeah. And I think there's a, is from my first mentor. So when I graduated college and started work at 22, 23, I was fortunate enough to have an awesome mentor who was successful at running businesses. He was 67, had tons of energy, but he always threw out this term called swipe, which is steal with integrity and pride. So if you see a good idea, you should go swipe it. So if I'm a private practice owner and I look out into the world of corporate consolidators, and obviously there's a wide range of those that I think do a really good job and execute really well and have grown because of that. And others that are there and are just large and they're successful in spite of themselves. And then there's obviously a mix in between, right? And so we don't need to necessarily to get you, Jeff, in trouble to say, hey, which ones are which, right, from that standpoint. But 
if you see something as a private practice owner or even another corporate entity and you're in leadership, it's like, okay, let's borrow these other ideas. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. So if this helps, and you also have to know your team, because you talked about that, you know, historically, maybe it's, they just want compensation higher. Maybe they want more time off. Maybe they need for more flexibility. So maybe you think the profit sharing idea is great. And the team's like, yeah, I don't want that really. I want this other thing. So like have the conversation and then build it from there as far as what you're trying to accomplish. But I, I personally like the idea of everyone having some skin in the game for their compensation to say, these are the big team goals. And if we move and do well together and it's not pitting front versus back or this other stuff, we all get to share that. And another interesting thing that I think we've chatted on offline and kind of in a pre-call was the idea of mentorship and helping kind of younger DVMs get up to speed and get to where they can produce at a higher level and be comfortable and not feel like they're falling behind or floundering. And I think that also then still ties back if you're doing some sort of profit sharing that incentivizes the rest of the team or the older veterinarians maybe that are there to help them so that you can be more efficient and see some of those other things come through. But can you talk a little bit about what you've seen, maybe from MVP, maybe just from your own experiences as a practice owner with mentoring younger veterinarians and getting them comfortable to say yes and feel confident in their abilities and how that's benefited the organization or others? Yeah. And before I answer, I just want to say with some of your commentary, fresh eyes from outside the profession are so impactful and observations like yours, because sometimes we get rabbit hole or get narrow vision and lose sight of things that work for other professions. And so in terms of the mentoring, I think it's the most significant piece right now. It's something that young graduates, recent graduates are super interested in, but it's a two-way street. We need our new graduates to become productive pretty darn quickly. One, to justify the compensation that they demand right now. And so the interesting thing is you quickly can see a new graduate within a year sometimes be as productive as someone that's been out five or 10 or 15 years. It used to be back in the day when I was a, you know, owned a practice or two and had my buddies that and colleagues that owned the practices where in some ways we, especially if you're a smaller practice, you shunned away from the new graduate because it was a big effort to get them up to speed and you didn't always feel like you're getting a bang for the buck and they left you in a year or two. Now, I think there's so much focus on picking up where the schools leave off and the schools can't be the end all. Sometimes we say they do a lousy job of training them for the real world. That model's changed a little bit with some of the newer schools that really use the practices to do a lot of the clinical training. But you can, within a year or two, really get up to speed very quickly. So I think you don't want to be have worked really hard in vet school for four years and you're not doing the internship thing and then want to go on easy street. I mean, there's a lot of newer grads historically that shy away from surgery and so on. The reason they do, they haven't had somebody really mentor and train them in that first year or two. And I think it's like anything, learning to swim, learning to ski. You do it when you're young and you don't almost don't even think about it. So if you're doing foreign body removals, dystotomies, and, you know, some, you know, fairly involved surgeries at a young time frame out of school, those can become pretty second nature. 
And those are really important skills. I mean, a lot of hospitals end up turning away a lot of medicine and profitable surgery because they don't have a confident staff to do those. Whereas if you learn that right out the gate, those are not particularly things that need to go to specialty practice. And by the same token, the confidence of those you know, individuals and the gratification and a lot of times the stress level. So you get two doctors on at a hospital and an emergency comes in and you're not comfortable doing that pyometra surgery, then either it's taking a real long time or you don't do it. And so I think it really impacts just your general confidence level, just like that basketball player that hits that first three-point shot or something. When you really feel good about it and you feel like you can do everything, you're going to be a lot more productive. And so I think mentoring is really significant. I think a lot of the groups do a great job with it, have a lot of emphasis on it, and no reason that independent practices can as well. I think you just need structure and goals, and we've seen the dividends of that, just the satisfaction. And then what it does is it frees you up, you know, whatever it is, three to five years out out of school to really look at, okay, are there some other things that I want to do? Can I be the medical director of a hospital or can I oversee five or 10 hospitals or can I go and own my own hospital? So I think that is extremely critical and has been a missing link up until maybe these last five years where there's been a lot more focus on it. Do you think it's more that younger grads are afraid to fail or is it more on the current either leadership within that hospital, whether it's corporate or private, that isn't giving them a lot of ability to succeed. Yeah. Again, you know, I don't want to put myself in the senior veterinary category because a lot of my, you know, baby boomer buddies that own practice and excuse my You're fine. My I only golden doodle. I only jumped a little bit because I wasn't looking and it just embarked. I was like, oh man. And she's looking at some deer outside the door or something. So I think part of it is the much more a focus on malpractice liability type things where people just are a little more afraid of going out on a limb and trying. And so, again, if you can have some emphasis on some of the basic surgeries, be it spay, neuter, and how to do that proficiently, you know, that can make a big difference whether that's a 40-minute procedure or a 25-minute procedure. And then it's just that whole confidence. Then you're ready to move on to, you know, some more complicated procedures. So it does make a big difference when you're shown. And a lot of times it's like a picture worth a thousand words. Sometimes it's this basic stuff, the type of knot or incision, you know, you can read all the books you want, but until you see it sometimes. And so having that ability to get mentored by someone that's, you know, specifically good at doing procedures. And it also, it's not just the surgery type things. A lot of that is also going to be exam room communication, then writing your medical notes. And those things make a big difference. How do you work efficiently within the hospital so that, again, obviously, time does equate to money too. So you don't want to think about, okay, I got to see 18 or 20 clients in a day, but being able to see that extra patient or two does make a big difference, make a big difference for the team. And we get into this culture where 
I'd say the front desk becomes a little bit of a gatekeeper based on a doctor's stress level. You sure. know? So all those factors make a difference. And sometimes it's even seconds. Banfield, you know, quite a few years ago, did time and motion studies and, you know, had a cycle of service. And when you really look at these things, ultimately, it seems like, wow, do we have to be that focused on the time frame of things? Ultimately, it's like anything else, you know, being a great basketball player or tennis player, practice and little maneuvers make a really big difference. And so, you know, you don't want to be hyper-focused on those things, but when that can become part of the culture in a positive way, it can have really, really big difference for a hospital in terms of even client satisfaction. You know, is everybody waiting 20 minutes because you're spending the time on the phone calling back blood results when, you know, technology now will allow those results to be sent right to the client. So they're looking for all those little ways of saving seconds. And that's the administration part of it. But if we're all working together, you know, those things can make a difference. And I just had that conversation with a running buddy of mine who's a urologist. And it was the same type of environment sometimes that people might say you might get it could be corporate independent. Banfield was, you know, got some flack on, hey, you got to see whatever it is, 18 or 20 clients a day back in the time. I see that in human medicine, the same and the struggles that my friend has in terms of now with the portals and emailing. It's like, you know, I go home at night and I'm emailing clients back to 11 o'clock at night just so I can, you know, stay ahead of the game. Sure. So it's not unique to this profession. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. I think what you just said there at the end is sometimes there are other professions that are struggling the same way. And it's not, again, hyper-focused on just this is a vet med issue. This is just a changing of client expectations or patient expectations in lots of different businesses. And like, how do you better adapt and leverage that? And it's either a great opportunity or it's going to be a huge stressor. And so it's like, okay, if you were to be the one waiting out there. Like when we go to the dentist or we go, yeah, to go to our, you know, MD for whatever, when you're waiting in the patient room for a long time, you're like, my appointment was what, are you a happy person? The answer is no, right? Like you're busy, you have time. So think of that with, with everyone else. And it's like, how can you make that experience better? And sometimes it's little things and stuff happens, right? It's not going to be perfect every day. And you just have to continue to, to try to, to get better. But going back to, to what you talked about, like that's from a leadership perspective where yeah, as a private practice owner, you can be a great doctor, poor leader. And I think that's something that, again, is not necessarily just a veterinary medicine thing. I saw that in my first job going back to my mentor. What happened is the best outside salesperson in the business that I was at got promoted to the national sales director. And you know what? Great sales guy, horrible manager. And it was very apparent from day one that that was not a good decision because you took the person that was best at that role and you move them into a position where that's not naturally the gifts that he was given. And he struggled. And so it's the same way of trying to get the 
right people in the right seats. And I mean, that's the GE Jack Welsh type thing from a long time ago for anyone that likes business stuff of finding the right people and putting them in the right position because the A player in XYZ scenario could be other person that's going to flounder anywhere else. And that is a challenge and it's an ongoing challenge. You talked about profitability. I want to ask a little bit about that because there's this, I'm going back, it's probably 20, I don't know when they released it in Vet Partners, but I think I saw it in 2019 of kind of the no low practice in this single doctor. There's revenue coming in the door. There's a patient base there, but it's not, it's not really saleable. It's not really profitable. It's kind of more of like, it's not really a business. It's kind of like, you're just the doctor and you show up and there's no one else to tell you what to do. But how do you think about the opportunity there? And how do you view driving more profitability in just hospitals in general that maybe are limited from a staff perspective or only have one doctor? Because like, there's no magic like spell that you can just be like, oh, yep, you just do this. And all of a sudden you're just way more profitable and everyone wants to acquire you. But I mean, if you had to give a couple, maybe baby steps, what would you encourage? Yeah. Great question. I just got a lengthy letter from a doctor who is retirement age and basically is like, you know, it's my fate that I'm not going to be able to sell my practice like a lot of my buddies. I kind of have lived in a world where in terms of buying practices, you almost think like, gosh, every practice is worth a lot of money. What you have to realize, just like our population, 15, 20% of the population is okay financially and, and the rest not so much. Um, I think that's where we are with, with practices. And so there's certainly a significant amount of practices that still, uh, whether it's a third of them or so, that are that one doctor, three, four, five hundred thousand dollar practice. And I think it depends where you catch those practices. You know, if it's been that way for 30 years, is it based on the demographic? Is it based on the doctor? And I talk about an it practice. How do you have, and I had a real life example of this, a $5 million practice on one side of town and then not far away, another one of these more classic one doctor, $400,000 practices. What, you know, because it would seem like, wow, that person would be able to get great customer service and the other place has got eight or 10 doctors. And, but sometimes a place just has a, develops a reputation and it could be based on quality of care, the ability to get people in, the price, you know, all those different factors that make one place popular. And also just the ability, and we talked about the mentoring, okay, one place is doing pyometras and, and uh, cystotomies and foreign bodies and the other one's sending them all to emergency. Well, you know, people don't love getting sent to emergency for all things. So I think, you know, it depends on a lot of factors, but is it, if you take that three, four doctor, three, $400,000 practice and put a hungry veterinarian or a talented veterinarian that can do it all into that location, will it take off and will it grow? And there's a lot of them where I think you may pick up a sleeper practice and really be able to grow that practice. So you have to look at each one individually. Some of these ones that are a little more rural can be a little more of a challenge. Certainly, what I've seen in some rural areas is, again, there's this it practice and they're phenomenal. Either they had extended hours or whatever they did, they got the four or five doctors and in most places, and it's a little more challenging economically in some rural areas, 
but a lot of these practices can be multi-million dollar practices that people come from all over. And so it's, you can in some ways prove some of the rural practices and put them into a less saleable situation. But I think there's almost always one place in many parts of these areas that really excel and have very valuable practices that sometimes blow your mind a little bit. Mm -hmm. So again, I think there are going to be a lot of practices that probably aren't going to find necessarily that buyer. And I'd say more recent graduates are a little less interested in, in the rural lifestyle. But obviously those practices aren't just rural. You know, there's plenty of one doctor practices. And I think there's a sweet spot too. You know, if I'm looking at, hey, I've been out five, 10 years and I'm at a stage where I want to do my own thing or I want to be an owner. I mean, there's a lot of different routes for that, but let's say it's outside of partnering with a group or so on. Those can be really great if you can get into, you know, 700 to a million dollar practice, you're at least earning your salary if you take your 20% production. So you're not just hopefully buying a job, but then if you can build that up, and I do a lot of presentations on taking a practice to that next level. I have a a colleague, uh, a couple of colleagues that have opened their own places recently. And within just two, three years, those can be multi-doctor, multi-million dollar practices. And again, I always say for someone that's, you know, how does an independent compete with a group? I mean, you can get great customer service in any of those places, but if you're that hungry new owner and you're not turning anybody away and you've got the skill set to keep most things in-house, very quickly you can build those practices. And that's, you know, there was so much demand during COVID being in the right place has been a good time for a lot of people. And so some starting it. And then I have another buddy that took over the second practice for him to a large practice and a friend wanted to retire and had, you know, probably again, a four or $500,000 practice, little older style of practice. And within a year or so that practice is two doctor and over a million dollars. And I have a little model that kind of shows like the value paradigm of practices. And when you hit a certain threshold, uh, the value just goes up exponentially. And so those opportunities are out there for sure. I think you just have to be a little prudent if you're purchasing a practice like that in terms of what the potential is. But sometimes you get a great buy and people are thrilled to have some new energy and skill set in there. So... I think it's good opportunities out there. Totally. And I was going to ask you your thoughts because I've obviously had lots of conversations both on this podcast and offline with folks that will have very different opinions on the success or the sustainability or the viability of private practice. But I think you kind of answered that. I did want to ask one question on the kind of if you can share or can kind of touch on and expand a little bit on that value threshold that you talked about with the exponential growth, kind of where that spot is, where it changes, because there's lots of like even in the registered investment advisory space. So like what my day job is when I'm not recording podcasts, right? So in the, the RAA space, there is a spot where you grow as a business to a certain spot. And there's a lot of private equity or other buyers in that space where it's like, oh, the multiples are what they will pay for that business drastically changes. Oh, and by the way, the revenue and all that stuff is much higher, but then you get like the people that own those businesses. It's kind of wild what it changes and, and where that threshold is. Now it's 
in my space, it's pretty big. <laughs> it's pretty big. So we got a ways to, to go from our team to ever get in that, that conversation. But yeah, I'm just curious on the value threshold, what you've seen or what you would kind of touch on there. Sure. And I would say over time, there was a time when groups were buying, you know, practices that might be one or two doctor, million, million two. But I think what has been discovered is that those can be tricky practices if you can count the number of reasons why you can lose a doctor, right? I mean, it can be anything from maternity leave, illness, people move. So there is a big risk factor when you buy a smaller practice. And a joint venture maybe is a little bit different, um, and so that can be viable. But the sweet spot in a lot of ways, I think, is, you know, three doctors, not bad, four doctors, even better, just in terms of, again, staffing a hospital. And then revenue-wise, almost under $2 million now is not as desirable. And that's not, I mean, look, there's a lot of different buyers out there, so I can't say that for everybody. But a sweet spot is going to certainly be close to $2 million with three, four doctors. Gives you sustainability in that practice. Now you have to throw in other factors. Some of that can involve the facility. What you'll see is right now, because let's say this last five to seven years, a lot of buying going on. Mm-hmm. And those five-year leases, <laughs> first-term five-year lease is up. And a lot of practices, you know, group-owned might be, well, we've grown the practice. We also have to staff the practice. And a state-of-the-art facility is pretty significant today. And so I don't think you can underestimate the value of a nice facility in terms of wanting a short sale. I like cheap real estate because it definitely helped the margins. But when I look at doctors that have really invested in their facilities and been able to grow into them, it's typically been a really wise investment. And it just, if someone's buying that practice and then they got to go put four or $500,000 into the facility, it's a lot of time and effort. It's a lot of money. And a lot of times it's, can we even add two exam rooms? So, I mean, anyone buying a practice wants to grow it. Anybody buying a practice wants to be able to staff it with the best people. And most doctors now, they're not interested in working in a house that's converted into a practice. So it's a significant, a strong practice management or practice manager can be a big draw also. Not that you can't potentially find or locate a practice manager. Sometimes it says something about the culture and the leadership of that doctor that they're able to hand things off to somebody. So I'd say that can be significant. So a lot of little factors, the demographics can come into play as well. Things like accounts receivable. But I'd say the biggest thing is probably your top three is going to be number of doctors, revenue, and that facility. And so in that paradigm, it's crazy. Like I said, you could purchase that million dollar practice and maybe it's run by one doctor, get in there, whatever it is, you know, fix up the clinic a little bit and just manage it a little bit different. Or maybe you're offering a lot more services. And within a year or two, if you can bump that up to a million two, a million five, two million at a doctor or two, and it's a totally what you bought maybe for a really good price, all of a sudden can be worth 
a heck of a lot more. And those multiples, it could be that you bought something for three or four times or five times profit, but some of those practices had a little profit. So you might get a really good buy, buy something for a half million dollars. And in two, three, four years, maybe that practice is worth two or three million. And so we talk a lot about who wants to own a veterinary practice. And it's kind of like, oh, nobody wants to own these days. And I think that's shifted. VBMA groups, as you know, are quite strong. And as I think they've seen the interest in practices and what some practices sell for, there's certainly a fair amount of people that are interested in ownership and management. A lot of different models for doing that. Yeah, I feel like that little segment of you talking about just the opportunity set, it makes me think of, again, outside opinion, right? So you can be a veterinarian and you're going to save and you're going to invest and do all this other stuff. Or you could take those funds, find a lender that is more than happy to lend into VetMed because it's a very great, reliable business from that standpoint. And you can take over a couple of years that $500,000 investment and now it's worth several million. It's not everyone. It not, doesn't just happen. Like there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears and stress and other things, right? And you know that more better than anyone likely how difficult that can be. But I mean, the magnitude of change that can have on a financial situation, that's where I go back to. I've said this you know, many times in the podcast where when I was told, hey, by my peers that I was going to, I told my peers that I was going to focus on vet med. They're like, oh, there's no money in vet med and all this other stuff. And it's interesting as I get more educated, entrenched, and have been around for a little while. It's like, that's not the case at all. And there's a lot of really interesting like entrepreneurial minds in vet med. And it's not always practice ownership. Sometimes it's just developing products and other things for their peers that the wealth creation in that is wild. And so that to me is another thing where it's like, you have a special skill set, lean into that and think of that investment in your education at vet school as part of kind of paying the dues to then go and do these other things that Isaiah without a DVM can go buy the S&P 500. It's like, that's not anything special. And you can try to save your way and invest your way to do it. But there's just so much opportunity to your point for younger, hungrier veterinarians to look at, hey, there's a lot of stuff in the, and there's a lot of money. I, we walked around VMX. I know you were there as well. There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of money spent to bring a lot of people in that space. So don't forget that. And the other piece that I'll kind of mention is you talked about the real estate and the facility and all that. And I've heard that multiple times. So it's really interesting. And I've had on in the past, Raul Chattajid from Matthews. And I ran into him at VMX and I think he had committed. He's going to come back on the podcast at some point. So I'll make sure he does now that I've thrown his name out there again. But he had talked about just the amount of value in veterinary real estate X the practice and just how much value creation has been there over the last handful of years. And there's some reasons for that that we don't necessarily need to get into as well. But it's really interesting because you have to have, again, the nice facility because it is tricky to, to recruit, retain talent because there is something to be said for being able to operate in a, an area that is functional and you're not crammed in like sardines and on top of each other because you know what, that's just going to add extra stress in a stressful environment anyways. You don't need that. So yeah, I really appreciate that. I think that's a great overview of kind of what the value threshold and kind of the exponential growth is. One thing that I think is really significant in one of my passions right now is taking the your individual self and you're your own JR in my case LLC you're your own business as a veterinarian uh, obviously a lot of times you are working for somebody but the taking that time to do and early on again financial planning career planning 
I think is really significant because you can steer that ship in that right direction. And so in my early days, I think because I was looking for specific things as opportunities came up in terms of whether it's buying a practice or getting into writing and consulting and those type of things, I think again, some of those outside forces as, as opposed to just doing the daily grind and not paying attention to your career for five, 10 years is a big mistake. And so in someone like your capacity that has seen a lot of different avenues that people have taken, that advice can be really helpful. And I think people really need to know, hey, what am I want to do the veterinary degree in a lot of ways. I don't want to compare it to a law degree, but it opens the doors to so many things that you can do. And so you can really enjoy the medicine intellectually and the practice, but boy, there's a lot of good opportunities. Totally. Yeah. That's extremely well said. I have a lot of other questions, but I'm going to ask the question I ask all the guests. And I think I told you about this. And if I didn't, then I'm just going to catch you by surprise. Right. <laughs> so I always let anyone that comes on the show, ask me a question. It's something that I, going back to the term earlier, swiped from another podcast that I had listened to for a while that I liked because sometimes the dialogue at the end of an episode was so interesting. I was like, yeah, you know, the guest was great. It was interesting. But then the guest asked this question and it like turned in this whole other thing. No pressure, right? Like the question can be silly. It can be off the wall. It can just be, hey, how was VMX? Blah, 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 whatever, right? Yeah. But any questions that you would want to kind of pose to me and we can chat through or, or dissect? Sure. And it goes back to my saying a fresh set of eyes because we think nobody, if you're not inside this profession, then you don't know anything about it. What are you seeing as the, I guess, really good opportunities coming up? And are you still as gung-ho on the profession as we come out of COVID? And I would say things are probably a little bit slower did we over, I guess, estimate the potential of the profession or how are you feeling about the folks that are going into the profession now? You talked about it earlier about there's a lot of different de novos. And one thing that's been interesting is we've had a number of clients that were the quintessential, I'm going to buy into this practice. It didn't end up working out for a variety of reasons. So I'm going to go do my own thing. And just seeing from the, here's the idea, here's the creation, and then just how quickly. And for some of them, it's been insane to see how quickly they've grown. Now, some of them are just like really special, smart folks and like the credit is all them. And other times it's like, hey, they're really smart, but they also put themselves in a position to win by being in the right areas and doing their research and understanding what's the opportunity here. And I think there's just so much thought that is going into how to design a better experience for someone to walk in. And I think Peter Weinstein talked about this a long time ago, and I know he talks about it all the time. It's like you're competing with service revenue from all these other areas. And especially as we go into a recession, and if people have less money to spend, right, at some point, they're going to start saying no to things. And if the veterinary care and the experience that you provide, it is a service and it is an experience that you need to provide them so that they say, you know what, when I need to pull back or cut back, it's not here because this is extremely valuable for us as a family. It's important for my pet. Like, you can build those relationships and bonds. I think that's been the really cool thing. So no, I think veterinary medicine is poised and I'm going to forget his name, but he's the CEO of JB Holdings. But he talked about there's the super cycle, the golden age of veterinary medicine that it basically started mid 2010s, right? And is a 50 year super cycle. I still believe that. I still fully believe that, that there's a really good opportunity. And what you talked about with, and it could be a rule, it could be a smaller secondary or tertiary kind of metro area finding that practice that's maybe less desirable from competing with the big 
consolidators or private equity money, you can go in as a young, hungry doctor and still make a, a really material impact. And we didn't necessarily, one of the questions and one of the areas I wanted to get into was kind of culture and thinking about that, which it's a whole other long kind of area to, to get into that maybe we can chat another time on it because I think it'd be interesting. But if you're a younger doctor and you come in with, again, a fresh set of eyes and go at it a different way where you're committed to building up the team and, and investing, where maybe they didn't get as much love as they should have from the previous owner, like there's dramatic changes there. And when people know that you care and that you're showing up for them each and every day, it sounds super simple. It's hard, right? And it's simple, but it's not easy. So to me, there's still a wild, really good opportunity. And then same thing, like you can go to a, another you know, corporate entity, have equity in that larger group of hospitals and do really well, work your way up medical director. And if you want to get out of clinical medicine, there's plenty of really cool roles, as we've talked about, right, that you can put your skill set to work and still make a material impact on patient care across lots of hospitals. Because you can only see so many animals in one hospital setting. But if you're in charge of multiple, you can kind of dictate how do we provide the best standard of care. And I think that's pretty cool. So it depends on what someone's trying to solve for and what they want from a, a lifestyle perspective. But you mentioned it earlier, like you have to know what you're solving for and be intentional, like putting your nose to the grindstone and working hard. Like there's a point that you need to do that. You have to do that. You have to put in the work, but you can't just say, I'm just going to grind, 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 grind forever and never like look up to say, what am I actually trying to get to? And so for me, I think one of the key things that we try to do in our conversations with clients is just like, what's the end result? What do you want it to look like? And it's like, just dream a little bit. And it might not even be realistic today, but like, where do you actually want to go? So no intention or plans of saying, hey, that vet med idea, bad idea. I'm done with it. You know, <laughs> right. Like, I think it's a great profession. The people have been fantastic that I've been able to, to meet. And I, I think VMX even just kind of put a big stamp on that too, where I had so many good conversations that. You know, sometimes it's just a personal conversation with someone where it's like, wow, that's just a good human being. And so that's been really fun. So you're not moving on to dentist yet. <laughs> no. So it's funny because like the dentistry thing was kind of my initial foray into vet med. And I'm almost at the point now where I've started to, I've tried to kind of do both, but I, I can't be everywhere forever. And it's kind of like, that's really, you know, in 2021 was less and less in 2022. There really wasn't much at all that I was doing in dentistry. And so I started to kind of remove it more and more from social media stuff, just because I don't, I don't feel like I can devote the time and energy needed to do a job well there. So it's like vet med is, is the focus. And if you look at our team, it's like, we have two other DVMs that are working with their peers. It's like, that's the focus, right? It's not necessarily on dentistry. So yeah, oddly enough, yeah, it was kind of dropping dentistry. Realize, for, I was just yeah, throwing the no. dentistry thing out there. No, but a, seriously. You know, yeah. moving beyond. But yeah, but it, it started more dentistry and then it came into vet med. And vet med to me has been the area where it's made more sense. And it's just been, yeah, I, I think the, whether it's the stories resonated, the content, the the intent, I don't know. So yeah, vet med is really the focus. So that's kind of where I've decided to devote time, energy, and basically my career at this point. So sure. yeah. well, we appreciate it. We appreciate the uh, fresh eyes. And also, I think the focus on making sure that veterinarians are successful, be it financially and just in terms of their work, as well as a lot of focus on the folks that, that you know, make up our team, which is we're nothing without them. So we appreciate the attention. Yeah. And I appreciate your time. And to wrap up for those that want to connect, reach out, learn more, like where would you send them? Is there anywhere you would encourage them to, to reach out? People are more than welcome to uh, contact me by email and, uh, you know, always uh, 
happy to have people share ideas or answer questions. Um, enjoy working with the students. So I do a lot with the VBMA groups as well. For me, it's just the evolution of the profession has been fascinating. And what we can give back to make sure that it's a good profession going forward is important. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. And uh, I know there'll be a lot of good nuggets that people pull out of this conversation. So thank you. Thanks. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's uh, enjoyable speaking with you today. All right. So there are a lot of new job postings. I'm going to read through these again. Please let me know if you reach out, connect with anyone, and this becomes a full-time or part-time opportunity for anybody. So the first one is a Central Indiana private practice equine or companion health practitioner, Janison Veterinary Clinic. So JVC is a six-doctor, team-oriented, AHA-accredited hospital with a focus on progressive veterinary medicine, quality patient care, and excellent client relations. Four-day work week with rotating Saturdays, dedicated assistant or licensed veterinary technician, Compensation is a base and bonus structure. Lots of benefits, too many for me to list. Bayside Hospital for Animals. Great work-life balance in beautiful Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Minutes away from the beach. Who doesn't love that? No weekends, Monday to Friday, 8 to 5. No on-call or emergencies. Currently a two-and-a-half doctor, non-corporate, small animal practice. Uh, lots of growth in that area. Associate position, happy to offer mentorship for new grads. ProSal with lots of benefits, too many for me to list. Newport Veterinary Hospital, Newport, Vermont, growing, thriving, rural, small animal practice with a touch of daytime urgent care on the Vermont-Quebec border, seeking the right veterinarian to enjoy the team, full-time preferred, but part-time considered as well, privately owned, value the staff and doctors equally with clients and patients, core values are integrity, motivation, empowerment, cleanliness, education, and compassion. If you love the outdoors, Vermont's hard to beat, list a ton of stuff for you to do there. And on compensation, basically it's bottom line. You can write your own ticket within the boundaries of production. The goal is the forward thinking owner is reasonable, would love to chat and build something that fits for you. And so there are open discussions there on that front. Associate veterinarian, part-time or full-time Fulton County Veterinary Clinic in Indiana. Are you looking for an oasis in the chaos? Do you want to be valued for your individuality and ingenuity? They offer and strive to foster a fun, fast-paced work environment while providing quality patient care, utilize support staff effectively so that the doctor is available to do more medicine in less time doing paperwork, no emergency on call, no after hours, no weekend work will ever be required, uh, flexible scheduling, competitive salary between 100 and 150,000, signing bonus, benefits, uh, too many to include, but one interesting one there as well is a mental health sabbatical. So those are all the offerings. I'm sure there'll be more at some point. I'm going to have to say, I can't read all of them, but uh, if you have one, keep them coming. And I hope that is helpful. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should talk to your professional team before implementing anything. If you want or need financial advice, my day job on Not Podcasting is helping veterinarians grow their net worth. Our team is taking new clients and we are ready to talk to you at any stage of life. Come as you are. I always say bring the mess, right? Like if things are unorganized, that's okay. There's no prerequisites to become a client. Isaiah Douglas is a partner at Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is a registered investment advisor registered with the SEC. The biggest compliment you can give me in the podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found and Apple Podcast is the platform that is predominantly used for people listening to the show. If you have three minutes, love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. It helps more people find the show. 
Also, the new YouTube channel is up and I'd love to have you subscribe vainly. I want 100 subscribers at least. Lots more, obviously, right? But I get a vanity URL if we get to 100. That would be great. It makes it easier to find the YouTube channel as well. For all of today's links, information, head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe to your favorite podcasting platform. It'll be a link to that YouTube channel I just talked about. You won't miss any other episodes, whether you listen on Spotify, whether you have some other ancillary podcast platform please like, subscribe, all that stuff. It certainly does help. I appreciate it. Finally, if you want more information, insights, want your voice to be heard, want to share ideas for content, say, hey, Isaiah, I want you to have this guest. I want you to talk about this topic. Go over to the Facebook group. So you can search for the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll to the bottom about your host, click on the Facebook icon, and that'll get you in the group. But thank you so much for listening. It means a lot to me to be able to see the podcast grow and continue to impact people. So with that, until next time, we'll chat soon. Mm-hmm.